Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. John Ward, thank you so much, man, for being back. You have been really kind of one of my go-to, not just information sources. I think we've developed a kind of a long-distance media friendship since 2016 when I started working on Depolarize back around Trump's election. Super helpful for me on that series. I know you've also been here on You Have Permission in the past, although I can't remember when it was. But man, I'm just glad any chance I get to talk with you. Well, totally. Likewise, we have developed a symbiotic relationship, haven't we? Um, I mean, what you've done with the podcast has been really great, and I'm really happy for you. Thank you very much. Um, you are senior political correspondent editor. What's your job title at Yahoo News? Senior national correspondent. Senior national correspondent, Yahoo News. And you've written a book before um, about the Kennedys 
But this new book you have is called Testimony, and it's really it's a memoir about your faith and kind of going away from it, coming back to it. You have a real combination here of a clear-eyed critique of what went wrong in your Christian upbringing, but also like an actual testimony of your own faith experience. And I think that kind of both and thing that you are doing in the book is just something that you're able to do generally. It's something that I try and do on this show, really kind of hold those two things at the same time. Maybe that's why you've sort of connected with what I've done and I've connected with what you've done. But I just want to name that. It's just one of my favorite things about sort of the way your mind works and the way that you're, that you do your job. When you talk about like me having a critique of the faith that I grew up with, I had this sort of instinctive critique as a child, teen, young adult in church. And that critique grew out of something instinctive into something that I pondered over, meditated on at that time in my life and have continued to do so since then. So let's go back to give people a sense of the type of Christian community that you were raised in, right? We listeners and their own experiences and upbringings are spread all over the map. Help us place you. So is there a denomination, a particular set of theological beliefs? Like what most defines that version of Christianity that you were raised in and kind of steeped in? My parents helped start a church in the 70s that was non-denominational and grew out of the Jesus movement. A lot of people of your listeners probably have heard of the Jesus Revolution uh, film that's out. Yeah. And that film depicts the world that kind of birthed my parents' church, the one that I grew up in. And they had been raised, my dad was raised Catholic. My mom was raised uh, mainline Presbyterian. And there was a lot of cultural societal factors that led to the Jesus movement. They were reacting not just against the post-war era of conformity, but they were also reacting somewhat against the sixties and the absolutely movement of, you know, free love and free sex. Drug Uh, experimentation. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to, I think they were coming out of that subculture to some degree, but they were also reacting against that subculture uh, and against what they felt like were its shortcomings or excesses. And so they started a church. It was a Bible study at first, and it became a non-denominational church that was charismatic, very charismatic early on in those early days in practice. The theology was a work in progress, probably very shaped early on by a lot of the sort of popular theological trends at the time, definitely like Hal Lindsey's book on, I always get it messed up. Premillennial dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. There we go. (laughs) Jesus is coming anytime, rapture, all that stuff. Yep. Yep. That was just in the air or in the water. So, you know, by the eighties, the parachurch organization that we had created to kind of oversee all of the different churches that we were planting was called People of Destiny International. And so we were focused on planning churches around the country and in other countries, very focused on evangelism. Over time, C.J. Mahaney kind of consolidated control. And by the mid-90s, it was Calvinist. But his his sort of through line was 
at some point in the 90s probably just became a very hardline focus on the atonement. And he he preached on that all the time. Yeah, C.J. Mahaney, uh, now disgraced, sort of scandalized, what we might call neo-reformed preacher and and organizational leader. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, he's down in Louisville. Their church, I think they still have a family of churches, which is much smaller than it used to be. Al Mohler used to be sort of his patron. I mean, Al Mark Driscoll still has a church too. So just because yeah, you yeah, are exactly. disgraced and, and scandalized doesn't mean that nobody is coming to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. I think the loss of, of Mohler's uh, patronage was a, was a big blow. Yeah. Al yeah. Mohler, major voice in the Southern Baptist world. You say in the intro, here's a quote. This is not a tale of growing up amid corrupt charlatans, although C.J. Mahaney might have eventually become one. But generally speaking, your your story, not growing up amid corrupt charlatans who use the name of God to amass riches, the leaders in my world were true believers whose intensity of belief blinded them to their errors, end quote. I love that sort of juxtaposition there. These, these, these are not snake oil salesmen, Unless insofar as they're buying their own oil, right? This is like another way you can err is to be so fanatical that you lose the forest for the trees, not that you are consciously trying to swindle people. And I and I partly wrote that because I wanted to set like plant a flag to warn myself. And I think I say something in that passage yeah. that in my critique of where I come from. I can still lapse into that same tendency to believe more firmly than I should in my own uh, bias or not. I I don't think of my point of view as bias to believe too certainly in my own point of view or my own set of perspectives or whatever it is, because I grew up in that culture and I had this, I was under this quote unquote spell that had been cast in the church culture about the sort of mythology of how great CJ was when I saw that he was in some respects, kind of a run of the mill charismatic, but manipulative leader. Again, I'm not trying to talk about him in totality because I want to be as fair as possible, but I, I saw some things that were, that were ugly. And it's amazing how, how much we can fall into the spell of a charismatic leader, because that's what I realized. I was under this spell And when I saw some of the things he was doing or had done, that's what drove home to me how much of a spell I was under. Because no, I shouldn't have really been shocked that he was doing that. That's the point. How did you know you were under, like, what were the clues that you were under the spell of a charismatic leader? I mean, it really kind of came through to me after I'd been out of the church for several years when I read the transcript of a phone call that had taken place years before where he tried to blackmail another leader into saying something publicly that wasn't even really accurate and used the guy's son against him and used a a confession that he had extracted from this son under the promise of confidentiality. And and the, the father of the boy in question, or rather the mother said, you know, you promised you wouldn't say anything. And, And Mahaney says something like, well, if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have promised that. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's pretty, wow. that's pretty yeah. low. Yeah. When people are under the sway of charismatic leaders, be, you know, all the way to true cult leaders, 
you know, with uh, control over people's entire lives to to sort of, you know, much lower on a continuum types of, of charisma. It's not obvious. Like you didn't know that you were that that was what was going on until you were already out of his orbit. You weren't having the sort of daily or maybe weekly, monthly sort of uh, reinforcement of his place in your life of whatever good or value he was bringing to your life. Once you had a little space, you could go back and go, oh, my gosh, that's what was going on with me. I don't know. It just kind of gets to the difficulty of disentangling in a situation like that. There are people from our church, from the Sovereign Grace churches who were victims of sexual abuse, who have who saw who have suffered real harm, not just in the abuse, but in the way that CJ and the other leaders handled those cases by not taking them to the to the authorities. So I'm not trying to minimize here anything that those people have suffered. But I think what I'm kind of even unpacking as we talk is that so often the emphasis is on, oh, this leader or that leader is a bad person. And I actually, that kind of bothers me a little bit. There are leaders who do bad things and, you know, we can say they were a bad leader. But to me, what I think is coming to the fore here is the fact that in a lot of evangelical culture, we place so much emphasis on the pastor and on the sort of cult of personality around the leader that when a leader disappoints us, we're somehow shocked rather than building an ecclesiology that doesn't expect so much from our pastors. I'm not excusing bad behavior. I'm just saying that's not the totality of CJ. It's not the totality of anybody. But yeah. I think we we respond in horror when this system that we've created explodes in our face over and over and over again. And, and that's something I've worked through over the last several years is like, I remember going to an Easter service a couple of years ago, and one of my first instincts was to go try to meet the pastor. And I was like, why do I want to do that? Like, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to tr try to avoid the leader. Let's practice that. I really like that. That's interesting. Where my mind was going, because I often think psychologically, right, for obvious reasons, Yeah, is to narcissism. And like what I was describing, the sort of either or from your quote, right? either a corrupt charlatan who knows that they are, you know, corrupting people and using them or a true believer who is genuinely believes their own bullshit. A narcissist is sort of neither of those. Like a true narcissist does believe in what they're doing, but for them, other people are merely tools for what they're doing. So it's it's kind of a neither, it's kind of a both and. And to connect that to what you were saying about church culture, certainly a lot of the American church, and I'm sure this is true worldwide, it's probably a individual and group psychological phenomenon, really values and looks for almost these types of leaders where some aspects of an overconfident, narcissistic go-getter you know, the type of person who could start and sustain a successful car dealership or whatever, plus God's stamp of approval on their car. I mean, that kind of a, a person, nothing wrong with selling cars, but you throw that into the blender and that kind of person is rewarded in so many mm. church settings. Like you're saying, it isn't all on those individuals, although they are culpable for their actions. 
The sure. system is also culpable. And those of us who maintain a system like that, that does end up promoting those types of people regularly, time and time again. And I think there's interesting stuff to be said theologically about the types of doctrines or beliefs that allow those people, well, they're winning souls because charismatic people get butts in the chairs, right? So all all these things, it's a big, giant mess. It's tangled. Probably one of the reasons you can see the mess is that you're a journalist and you've been trained to sort of untangle messes and look for, you know, different threads. Yeah. And I think over the last several years, going back to the time you were working on Depolarize and I was starting up the podcast about institutions, the long game, I think that's when I really got pretty intentional about thinking about systems and incentive structures. And and I think that trend line has continued throughout this book. I, I applied it at the time to politics. I'm applying it now to my upbringing in church cultures. And I just keep coming back to that because I'm not trying to deny free will or agency or whatever term you want to use, but I really don't think most people think or talk about problems through these lenses often enough. You know, demonization is a part of this problem. We look at individuals or groups and we we blame the problem on that person or this group of people. Yeah. And a lot of times, as much as people are, yes, they're responsible for their actions and they're culpable for their mistakes. But we are all, that's why I love Jamie Smith's book on time. He talks quite intentionally about how we are formed rather than hatched. And I think that binary is a really helpful one. And I, and I hope one of the things that I, that comes out of my book is that more people from religious conservative backgrounds think about and reflect on their lives and how they've been formed. I think that's a particular weakness of evangelicalism. We could talk about CJ Mahaney. We could maybe talk about Mark Driscoll just because more people are familiar with that story, or you could pick any other example you know, that comes to mind for you. But I want to hear more from you about this, like this sort of blind spot to the role of institutions and within those institutions, the various incentives that that they have to protect themselves, to promote certain individuals or certain ideas over others. And then those institutions roles in shaping us as individuals. Where do you think we should focus? Like what, what's coming to mind for you? What I think was very true was you just talking a minute ago about how in any assessment of a problem, there's going to be many different inputs and that's a complex environment. Yeah. And so if you want to reduce it to simplicity, you often pick a villain and blame it all on that person. And you're correct. I think in saying that journalism has trained me to resist that tendency And I've been writing about politics mostly, and a lot of what I continue to do is just sort of look at complex uh, issue sets that are operating on different levels that all converge in like one arena and trying to untangle them. And there's just always an underinvestment of thought, uh, except for the expert areas, in how these systems are designed and how they create incentive structures. So I think this is a I think this is a topic for like a lot further exploration. The problem is that it's it doesn't pay well in terms of attention <laughs> and money. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And you need you need money to sustain any venture. 
what pays well is stuff that people can grasp more easily. And uh, I don't, you know, I think we're in an increase. The world continues to get more and more complex. Yeah, that's that's a macro level problem. Exactly. Maybe let's let's focus on the micro then. So, it you know, just in the story that you have put forth in the book and the work that you've done sort of uncovering your own history, maybe is there an example or two where you were formed by an institution and its incentives in a way that you weren't aware of at the time that you, you kind of came to realize later when you looked back? Mm. Then you don't have to diagnose and solve all of our ills as a, as a culture. <laughs> when I talk about ways that were formed, and I think this is what Jamie Smith means, is referring to as well. He's talking about the ways that what came before us often sort of resides in us and in the environment around us. So a lot of times it just means really doing a lot of work to understand history, family history, church history, political history, cultural history. There are these deposits at a sort of metaphysical level, but the history also teaches us the cycles that have come before us and the structures that have been set up that created the actions and choices or shaped the actions and choices that came before us. So a lot of, I think, understanding formation is studying history. Because the other way you could answer that question is, well, I really thought about the ways that the habits of Bible study and spiritual disciplines and preaching and church practice shaped me in the church that I grew up in. And that is some of what I do. But I think the thing that often evangelical culture especially the kind I grew up in, doesn't think about is the ways that our beliefs are products of our environment as much as they are of any kind of rigorous, authentic uh, process, you know, and that's what, that's what Smith is getting at as well. He's like saying, we want to think that our views or our beliefs on everything are, are something that we came to after really doing a searching, you know, look and reading through the Bible and uh, talking to the right people, a lot of what we think and believe is actually just the product of our upbringing, um, stuff that we've assumed, uh, just all of these deposits. And so I think unpacking that stuff, it's frightening to a lot of people because it yeah, means, it's threatening. Yeah, it means, you know, possibly unearthing and dislodging things that we thought were pretty solid. But, uh, you know, I keep coming back to this phrase that like the the quest of faith is the quest for authentic reality, whatever that is. That brought up a lot of things for me, just in terms of history being helpful. I'm thinking about how many people have found the book Jesus and John Wayne particularly helpful in, yeah. in its tracing of a particular kind of Christianized American masculinity right. and going, oh, my gosh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense of my experience or my church's messaging or, you know, my dad or whatever. And then I'm also thinking about therapy, you know, when you mentioned family history. So not all yeah. forms of therapy require sort of the classic, you know, Freudian or, or psychoanalytic, like let's talk about your mom and dad, but a lot of stuff really does require that. You know, if you, if you were raised in a traumatic environment, you can't really understand that without understanding what happened with your caregivers, usually parents, but sometimes not. And then in terms of, you know, James K.A. Smith, also known as Jamie Smith, to people who either know him personally or talk like they do, I don't know him personally. So I, I try not to call him Jamie Smith. But I also 
don't know other people personally that I will call by the names that other people call them who do know them personally. So anyway, in psychological training, you know, we learn about cultural competency. Someone comes in from a culture you're not familiar with. The main thing you need to do is sort of be open and like non-judgmental, you know, ask them questions if you need to. But there are also certain things that you basically you might expect, right? So someone's coming in from uh, as a Latin American immigrant, they are much more likely than your standard American born and raised to bring their family or want to bring their family into a session, right? So these are just, for instance, cultural patterns. Now, is that because people raised in Latin America really thought about the value of community and people raised in in the U.S. really value individualism and they've really come to They've really come to believe that. Of course not. These are inherited norms, right? And then as you get older, you can challenge them and people can change them. And some people move to the States and they go, you know what? I like a more individualistic culture. I'm choosing this over my collectivistic culture. Other people get a taste of it and go, I prefer my collectivistic culture. But the starting place is never chosen, never, ever chosen, at least under a certain age, But that is threatening precisely because a lot of Christian theology, and especially this is definitely true of evangelicalism and other, you know, I'm sure it's true of probably most religions, is there some version of the claims of the religion that say, well, we believe this because it's obviously true. It's been supernaturally revealed to us. We we keep that alive. And like, we're, we're just, we're right. So that's why we believe it. And then to have this, well, uh... That, that might be a little part of why you believe it. That can be very destabilizing. Okay, I responded to like four different things there. This, this is bad interviewing skills. Don't learn from me, listeners. <laughs> the only thing I would say is we are intentional and thorough about not a lot of things as individuals. We are intentional and in thinking through in depth and in a thorough way on any topic, on on not many things in our lives. Yeah. And that's fine because it takes a lot of time to do that. And we should prioritize only the things that we really care about to do that with. But what we often don't do is recognize that that's the case, both in and ourselves and even the people around us. So I think what many of us often don't do enough is two things, a whole our conclusions about a lot of things, especially the things we haven't been intentional and thorough on loosely. And I I think the second thing is we just is more situational to the last 20, 30 years in some ways in terms of the death of expertise and like not respecting expertise enough. And that's complicated. Like experts get stuff wrong too, but just as a system of, of thought and analysis and assessment. Like we just don't give enough credit to people who have been intentional and thorough on their subject area and pick five people who have done that on a topic and have different, you know, priors and, and kind of work through them all. But that's all I'm saying. Like we should do more of that. If you'd like more, you have permission. 
You can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke. That link is in the show notes. Patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them, as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, it's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. Well, that's a good bridge to something I wanted to ask you about. You were on Russell Moore's podcast talking about the book and you mentioned what you were calling epistemic modesty. So uh, the idea that what we, you know, being modest about what we know and don't know. I think that's basically the same thing as intellectual humility, which is I'm actually involved in a sort of multi, multi episode, larger scale project right now on intellectual humility. So I'm I'm thinking about it a lot. Yeah. Part of like a research grant thing. If you have more to add about a definition for epistemic modesty, please do. Yeah. But I also want to know where you saw that as you looked through your own story, where you did or did not utilize it, like lessons you learned about it specifically or personally. I was talking to somebody earlier, like, it's not that we're wrong about everything. It's just that we, we never have a 360 degree view of anything. We often have a pretty narrow slice of view of, of something. And um, I think it's just recognizing that there's a lot of other angles that people are looking at something from and that there's a, a large degree of complexity to most things that should cause us to slow down in reaching conclusions. And so what it encourages is a is a I think it should encourage us towards greater rigor and greater patience in how we go about finding information and reaching conclusions. That's what I would say about epistemic modesty. So the thing is, Dan, I'm not good at like talking points. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a strength. Like I just wrote something on my Substack about how language was something that I saw used as a weapon. Uh, it's something that bothers me to this day when language, I see it in politics all the time, but where I saw it used as a weapon growing up in church was where people just sort of took terms, defined it once and for all, and then used it repetitiously over and over and over and over again. And it was a signal by the leaders about how to conform. And it was a signal by the followers about whether they were conforming rather than a symbol of meaning open to question. Even at a young age, I, I was very allergic to using those buzzwords or, or phrases. I often wanted to do the work to put stuff into my own words so I could think through what I was actually saying. And I think that's part of why I don't do good on like talking points because I start to feel like if I'm using the same language over and over, my brain is sort of drifting somewhere else and I'm not, Hmm. I've like lost touch with reality. I mean, I think about that a lot in general. There is a real skill and there aren't a ton of people that have enough of it where you can distill the truth of something into something memorable without distorting that truth. That is like, that's a million dollar skill. And it's one that I am trying to work on. I think it is within my reach, generally speaking, as a a public person for, for the next, you know, decades or whatever. It's something I want to get better at. It's something that, you know, for instance, great therapists and psychologists who have established various forms of treatment, like 
they are good at that. You know, distilling this into five skills you can teach someone and, and kind of figuring out how to do that. Like that distilling, that synthesis is frankly necessary, I think, for human yes. minds. Absolutely. But yeah, a lot can be lost in the translation. And you can combine that with charisma where somebody sounds like they are being profound and they're not saying shit, you know, mm. and, and that stuff I'm, I'm so allergic to. So it, that anyway, in a meta sense, I, I'm with you. It's a, that's a tough and kind of ongoing thing for me, but I think that I can tie this to the book and what you've written about the book. I think this is, I'm looking at something I screenshotted from your Substack actually, which by the way, Josh will put a link to uh, johnward.substack.com in the show notes. But you're talking about the book, how you find yourself between things a lot. You say between the church and the world, between journalism and my family, between faith and reason, between knowledge and mystery. I wrote down too, uh, maybe from later, not in the screenshot, between certainty and apathy, between overconfidence and neglect. And mm. this kind of middle space that you are trying to occupy, I think lines up pretty pretty exactly with what you're talking about with epistemic humility. It's like overconfidence, you know, and oversimplification, right? Like these are enemies of truth often. Maybe not maybe there are ways to simplify without oversimplifying. But a lot of times we're oversimplifying. And it also reminds me just of this space I'm trying to hold within the sort of culture wars of Christianity in America right now and trying to talk with people more conservative with me and people more liberal than me. Uh, this is just not very valued right now, right? Like not numerically, not monetarily. It's not the way to build a following. It's not the way to monetize uh, your work. Can you just speak to that a little bit? And you can you can go as wide as you want into politics or, or whatever is coming up for you. No, I'm going to go narrow actually, because you said something about being overconfident or neglectful. And I've talked a lot in this book and in interviews about, you know, and, and in this conversation about not being too quick to reach a conclusion and, and embracing nuance and complexity and uncertainty and not knowing. And I've encountered something in my journalism job just over the last couple of days. Kyle Duncan is his name. He went to Stanford Law School and he was uh, protested by a number of progressive students. And then when he began to speak, they began to heckle him. And that went on for about 10 minutes. And uh, there's some debate over whether he was shouted down or not. But the, the point I'm trying to get to is that there was an, an administrator for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Stanford, an associate dean of DEI, which is a growing space in academia. The judge who was, who was invited there by the Federal Society branch on campus, and when he asked for an administrator or somebody with the college to intervene and, and bring more order to the event, this uh, associate dean stood up and came up to the front. And what struck me was that she used a lot of that language that I could see myself using, but I didn't really agree with what she was doing, which was inserting herself into the conversation to comment on the appropriateness of the judge's remarks. And uh, that's not to say whether I agree or not with the judge's decisions. I, 
probably don't with a lot of his decisions, although I haven't read them, so I don't know. I'm just based on basing that on characterizations. Long story short, the 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 dean of the law school uh, wrote a letter last week laying out sort of what fr- the First Amendment protects in terms of protest and what it does not, and how that applies to the school's policies, and uh, place that administrator on leave. And it just it just it wasn't a great look for that administrator. And and I just thought you know you can talk about uncertainty and um, nuance and carefulness all you want. Uh, but there are times when you have to, I don't know, I don't know what the, even the word is, take a stand or, or or you have to act and you're probably going to get it wrong somewhat. And and that's where these these notions of complexity really are, are tested. And I think on the back end, kind of to the point you're making about how hot everyone's tempers are these days, I think on the back end of an incident like the one at Stanford, all of us as individuals have to really do the work of assessing our own emotional reaction to it and to seek to extend grace to people, even as we do, again, going back to the CJ conversation, hold people responsible and culpable for their actions or their mistakes. But we have to, as individuals, try to extend grace, assess our emotional reactions, and then at a more society-wide level, we've got a lot of work to do to identify the role of conflict and entrepreneurs or crisis merchants in how they people, there's a lot of people out there who make a living and make a name and a career on seizing on these moments and whipping people up into a frenzy. That's a huge problem right now. I love the term crisis merchant. That is a very, I just been calling them bad actors who uh, want my money or attention, my clicks or whatever, by whipping me up into an outrage. They don't really care about what actually happens in the world and who's harmed as long as they get more powerful or more wealthy. And one of the things that can happen for folks like you and I, or people who listen to this podcast who have had a faith change and therefore a subcultural shift is that, you know, we find family members and other loved ones, close friends, whatever, in the thrall of some of these crisis merchants and providing them, our, our loved ones with talking points and, you know, almost allergic to nuance. How do we deal with that? Can intellectual humility or epistemic modesty be a part of that, you know, formula? How do you see that stuff kind of playing out or, or working together? Well, I mean, in relationship, it's hard to change people's minds. And so I've I've moved away from trying to do that for the most part and focused on relationship with the people that are most important to me, namely my parents. That doesn't mean that I didn't uh, write a book about you know my point of view. That's different than writing them an email. I actually feel like writing them an email would have been another waste of time hmm. <laughs> because I've done that you know, for years. And, uh, I don't know, writing a book. I just, I had to get this book out of me and, um, I kind of put it out there. My, my dad's read it. He didn't really like it very much, but our relationship has grown much closer as a result because of talking through it. Now, a lot of that's because he's a great guy, you know, and, uh, it says a lot about him that he's heard some of my relational complaints 
and been able to look past our political this our disagreements over po- politics and church and religion and all that and and really focused on prioritizing our relationship he's done that as well um probably maybe even more than i have but i i don't i didn't write the book expecting that i would change my parents minds i didn't write the book expecting that i would change a lot of minds of people to the extent that i want people from a conservative evangelical world to even acknowledge my book i hope it prompts just exploration of their own story and their own formation that's really that's really my hope for it and so you know c.s lewis always talked and i i took this to heart from a pretty young age he talked about if you want to persuade or influence people you can't come at them you know straight ahead you got to come from the side and um you know maybe that's like putting my cards too much on the table but i think you know prompting people to explore their own story that's one way to come at come at it from a sideways point of view because you're not telling them to think like you you do um you're not even really disagreeing with them you're just saying hey you know you might enjoy going on this doing a process like this yourself just asking some of these questions that's really the key anyway it's not vital that we all think the same thing it's vital though that we are living thoughtful lives and uh and really you know being intentional about about things how does that line up with intellectual humility? Because in one way you could say, well, I know the truth, but my plan of attack is going to be to come from the side and convince people of the truth that I know. Another approach would be to say, well, coming from the side actually includes some genuine openness and less calcification on my end, less sort of assumption of the facts of the case on my end. How do you think about that? I'm I'm more of the latter. I don't really, when you say, I think I know the truth, that doesn't resonate with me. I don't consider myself to know the truth about, that's such a definitive statement. And so, you know, what's funny about saying that is that if you're talking to a conservative religious person, let's say I'm talking to a conservative religious person, person X, CJ Mahaney, my dad, whoever. If I say, I don't know the truth, and we're talking about politics, they'd be like, oh, that's that's a great statement. I commend you for that. It's refreshing. Yeah. If I say I don't know the truth about God or religion or Christianity, they that would be a red flag to them. Right. Um, and oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I, I would say, like, I think we should approach both those. I mean, quite honestly, what is befuddling and and kind of amazing. Is that over the last few years, you know, I I was working on things as a journalist where I was investigating the factual nature of things, such as the reliability of voting, the frequency of voter fraud, how voter fraud happens, how election, all these things. And I saw people being thrown into confusion and even being misled into error by Trump on things that were factually knowable to a pretty high percentage of certainty. And yet many of these people come from a religious background where there are matters of faith and mystery that we just can't know for sure. Like we don't know whether God exists. We haven't proven it. As far as I'm aware, I believe God exists. And yet even further down the line of theology down to, you know, theological minutiae, if you question some of these things, people feel like you're uh, a heretic or anathema. And yet these are things we actually can't know. We have to have faith for them. 
And so there's this weird dynamic where people who are absolutely certain of things we can't know for sure are also believing things that are not true or just saying we can't really know for sure about things that are actually pretty knowable. It was a pretty interesting dynamic. But going back to your question, I don't think I really, even on matters of politics where I've investigated and really looked hard at these things, I think the last few years have pummeled me into a more practical you know, open-handedness about my views, where even if I think I know what the case is, just because I think that doesn't mean I'm going to persuade somebody I love to think the same as me. I cannot actually do that. I've learned that. Like, you cannot change somebody's mind. If they're going to believe something, they're going to believe it. And you can tell them what you think, or you can't, or, or you might not. A lot of times it doesn't really matter. <laughs> and And knowing when it might matter or when it does matter, that's maybe a matter for, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, maybe. Well, I think of it because of therapy, right? So not in all cases, of course, you don't always know what's best for your client, but in a lot of cases you do. Reducing your drinking would be good for you. (laughs) You know, uh, not returning to that abusive partner would be good for you, right? You know, you you can't make people act a certain way. You can't force people to do things. You just can't. You can't. You can't. You have the power of the state. Well, sure. Yeah. Or other power over people, but. But one thing that we learn is like a, a technique called motivational interviewing, which is very sophisticated psychologically, although it's very simple. And it's it's kind of this dance you do with people. It's, it's really in agreement with the C.S. Lewis quote you're talking about. You, you don't come right at them. You might say something like, oh, well, it sounds like sounds like you really get a lot of enjoyment out of, you know, drinking those beers every night. And then what the person will tend to say is like, well, yeah, but, you know, then I really have a hard time getting up for work the next morning. And then you go, oh, tell me more about that, <laughs> you know? But if you say, man, it sounds like your drinking is really ruining your job, yeah. then people will tend to go, well, yeah, but they'll they'll give the other side of the argument. This is, in motivational interviewing, the idea is it's when people are are ambivalent about something. So if you don't have ambivalence, then like you're talking about, you really can't do anything. Like if they don't, if they're not that interested in changing anything at all, they don't see the problem. Well, there might be ways that you can ask open-ended questions that might slowly get them to realize there's a problem, you know, but you can't force them to realize there's a problem. You can't force them to stop drinking. You can't force someone to look into vetted sources about the, low incidence of voter fraud. You also can't force them to trust better sources than the ones that they currently trust. I mean, it it can be so damn crippling. It can be yeah. so disillusioning when you realize just how little agency you have. But I like yeah. that phrase you said earlier about, in the context of your faith, like you, you want to be plugged into reality. And this is something I, I just, I keeps coming up for me. Like it comes up with my clients. It comes up conversations with my friends. It comes up on the podcast, the limits of my control versus yeah. stuff that's out of it. And man, I wish I had way more control over people's ability to think and reason their ability to vet news sources. Yeah. You know, I, I wish, I guess I wish I had could even improve those things in myself. And I even seem to have limited control within my own self to get myself to have new habits, mm. uh, to, you know, whatever. I wish I had control over the amount of energy I have in the afternoon. 
and the late evening, you know? I don't know. So just the limits of control is like, it might be the question for me of the last 12 months of my life. I'm not sure. I think I'm glad when we don't have control over other people, but it it puts a different shine on it when you talk about control over yourself. That's self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Right. That's important. Yeah. uh, Yeah. seems like a good thing, uh, but control over other people seems like pretty clearly a bad thing to me. I think it's a good thing we don't have control over other people. I don't know if ambivalent is the right word, but I, I may be functionally ambivalent at this point to the outcome of my 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 journalism and my writing. I, I kind of wrote the book thinking I really need to just sort of get this out there because I do think it's worth saying. I don't think I'm overestimating the impact I think it'll have. I, I think it'll have impact, but and then when you come to like my daily journalism. I mean, there were there were moments over the last year or two where I just thought, I don't know if I can do this job anymore because I kind of put my blood, sweat and tears into trying to provide the public with accurate information about the election of 2020. And it just got steamrolled by lies, you know, flat out. That's what happened. And that and that was very discouraging. Um, So, you know, going forward, as long as I'm doing journalism, I think I've just been my expectations for the impact have been tempered. By reality. And uh, I, I came of age in journalism when journalism was thought of as a high impact you know, job. I don't know if that's, it's definitely not as true as it used to be. I would imagine the impact was higher if by impact we mean persuasion, ability to persuade, when there were fewer sources that more people agreed on trusting. Right. So if, you know, the New York Times is the kind of last word accepted by 70% of the population on what happened somewhere, then that's high impact because they are giving the sort of definitive account of some important world event. But once it's no longer that way, once the only people who are, who take it seriously are those who already take it seriously. Well, there's still a value there. Because for, let's say, 50% of the country, if the New York Times does a big expose on something, well, 50% of America will now be swayed to some degree, uh, have information about that that they will accept. And the other 50% will not at all. And they might, in fact, be incentivized now to think that it's false. So it's, it's not that it does nothing, but it doesn't do as much persuasion. And, you know, you would probably know better than me. If you go much further back in history than the kind of golden era of the mid-century where there was sort of more agreement for a while on these things, you know, back to yellow journalism or all the pamphlets being printed during the time of the Revolutionary War. I mean, I don't know how much, how many trusted sources there were in those days that everybody agreed upon. That might have been the blip and the exception. I don't really know. Uh, But I like that you're being honest with yourself about what your work can and can't do, you know, for instance, for therapists, that's, it is absolutely necessary. If you inflate your ability to affect a person's life, you will burn out. You will be beaten down and you will quit. You'll stop doing it because you can't maintain it in the face of the facts, which is that you have limited control. You have limited agency over your clients. You can do the best work you can do. That's all you can do. You, You don't have control over, the outcomes you have control over the process essentially. Yeah. And that's the transition I've been going through and it'd be great if I can continue to do this work 
for many years of journalism and and in recognition of that new reality because it is kind of the new reality it didn't used to be this way um the, you know the other thing that that has caused me given me pause has just been like the some of the vitriol that's happened directed at me after being attacked by you know my old boss Tucker Carlson or uh, James O'Keefe went after me one time so just seeing some of the the mob mentality of people online when they get whipped up by by a demagogue has been has been has you know it's not worth not worth it well and that's yeah obviously that's discernment that you have to make for for you and your family speaking of crisis merchants Tucker Carlson is always the first one that comes to mind for me but he's yeah. not the only one right. and and they they do exist on the left as well absolutely yeah, well wide ranging conversation really fun john your questions are so great. I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation because it's been really a curious conversation, exploring or exploring things. It's not talking points. And I really appreciate that. Let me give you one chance to just kind of, since this is like a more of a religion podcast, and I'm not sure all the bots you've done are, there is a, one more quote I wanted to to share. And it's about it's about your faith. Quote, the feeling I get from this small flame is that there is a point and a purpose to all this, to my life, to what is happening around me in this big, tragic, beautiful world. It is the voice of God. I was trained to hear it when I was a child, and this was a great gift, end quote. And I resonate with so much of that. I resonate with the part that, you know, I just answered a question the other day at our live event that we did around like, you know, what do I mean by God? And essentially a short version of my answer there is like, I just mean that this stuff matters, that, that it, it ultimately does matter. It's meaningful. There is some purpose. There is some intentionality behind all of it and real beauty that is not merely just this thing that's happening to us neurochemically or whatever. And the other part I resonate with your quote, two things in one short quote is that I was trained in some way to see that as a child. You know, when I turn yeah. my attention toward God, that is a skill that I learned very young and I still use today. And I haven't left my faith either. So I thought maybe just a, I just want to hear you kind of respond to that quote or, or respond to me responding to yours or just a couple minutes on that kind of faith thing. Cause you probably don't actually get to talk about that part as much. You're always in journalism mode. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, about, this whole conversation, and I think you embody this, is an attempt to marry up rigor with curiosity. Because if it's if the conversation is all curiosity and question asking and theoretical statements and not a lot of real world experience, it's not that useful. But if it's all rigor and all expertise and all established knowledge and talking points, then it lacks sort of that freshness or vitality. It lacks the ability to maybe grow and evolve. And I think this actually connects back to what my parents were searching after in the 70s. They felt institutional religion had grown stale and, and lifeless. They tried to infuse it with new life and authenticity And I think something real happened back then. I don't know what it was, but something happened. You know, they had a really amazing experience, which many people from their generation are still kind of living off the momentum and the energy of that. 
which I think personally is a problem. <laughs> and so there's always been that tension between institutional order and emotion and passion and authenticity. And uh, and that's what I think you're doing in this conversation, in this podcast. And as for that quote, I was really just trying to get, and I, and just go back to that last one, I think we got to stay in the middle. We got to enjoy the tension, got to endure the discomfort of not being in either camp 100%. And as for that quote, you know, that was one of the portions of the book that came late in the process. I don't remember where or when I I wrote that, but it just kind of, it came pretty quickly. And I was just trying to jot down the things that are almost too great for words about faith. And um, I'm glad you liked it. And when I said it was the voice of God, that was like poetic license almost. Mm -hmm. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, was it the voice of I, I Well, don't. right. If God exists, then that's the voice of God. And if not, then it's something else. And, and we don't know. And again, that's the tension we have to live in. We we can't know for sure. Yeah. One of the things that Trip Fuller, Homebrew Christianity, good buddy of mine, he kind of closed out one of our sessions at this event, which we're recording this three days later. So it's fresh in my mind. But he, you know, he talked about how like we, we were talking about kids and teenagers and all of that stuff. And he was like, look. You can, you can form your kids through the beliefs, rituals, practices, and community of, for instance, a church or a Christian, you know, whatever framework. And if you don't, it's not like it's not going to be replaced with something else. Your children, young people, whatever, are being formed right now by social media algorithms. They're being formed right now by crisis merchants. They're being formed right now by all kinds of shit. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. There is you, we are, and this is James K. Smith writes about this stuff all the time. We are being formed all the time. And so one of my reasons for living a Christian life and raising my child in some sense, Christian is that at the moment that seems like because I'm not going to let the really shitty toxic Christianity stuff in. So I, I'm going to, we're weeding that out as much as possible. Maybe can't have a hundred percent accuracy, but certainly a lot more will be weeded out than was weeded out for me. And like, if I compare that to, well, he'll just be formed by like TikTok, you know, or he'll be formed by whatever the hell his friends are into, you know, like, yeah, the mall, I guess there won't be a mall probably by the time uh, online shopping. I don't know. Whatever the versions are of consumerism of, you know, like Trip was talking about how these platforms literally make the most money when people feel the worst about themselves. Like that's one of the things that we, that we are learning about them, you know, that disgust with yourself and envy of others. These are better drivers of clicks than hope and inspiration. Although there are hopeful and inspirational things on these networks, cat videos, et cetera. That's not really what they want. And certainly crisis uh, merchants and people like that, they certainly don't want you feeling great about yourself. That's not how their bottom line is met. And, and, you know, so I I'm convinced by that basic line of thinking that there's something here worth preserving while modifying it. And even if God's not real, even if that's false, it is still a formation system 
that to me seems preferable mm. than other alternatives that, that I have access to. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before we wrap up. I mean, when you say our kids are being shaped uh, to me that my heart kind of cries out, well, that's, that's where the battle is for me right now. Like that's what I wake up and spend a lot of my time thinking about and living for not to try to control them, but to try to send them into the world, certainly formed in ways that I hope are good, but loved and supported. You know, that's, I guess what I'm getting at is that like, that's whatever happens to us when we die, man, if, and you don't have to have kids to feel this way, but if you don't feel like life means anything, then you're probably just overlooking the people closest to you, the people who love you and whom you love. And that's, that's no matter what, like, that's just of incredible value and importance. So it's not really a very profound thing to say, but, uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Everything you said today, your time, John Ward, thank you so much for joining me, man. Dan, thank you so much. And uh, many, many years of being a public figure ahead of you, I think. I think I hope so. <laughs> I think I'm planning so. Public person. I'm going to start calling you Danny, though. That's no, the problem. No, 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 no. Nobody is allowed to call me Danny. My father-in-law tried that once. The book's called Testimony, and we'll have a link to that as well as your Substack in the show notes. Yeah, man. Always DK? a pleasure. DK. Uh, you might have to keep trying I'm not a nicknamer I have to say it's just Bobby Dylan 